Welcome to The Loaded Goat. I'm Aaron. And I'm Chris. And today we're pleased to have actor and stand-up comedian Michael Stein with us. He has appeared in a number of films, including Boogie Nights and Love Hollywood Style, which he wrote, directed, and produced. He is also the host of the Long Shot Leaders podcast, and he is here today to break down a wife for Andy with us. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. How you doing? Doing well, thanks. We appreciate you being here. Uh, very cool. I love the concept. It's a, it's quirky. It's fun. Uh, I, I got to know off the bat because I didn't get to see uh, here on the episode. I mean, what's the impetus of the, the love for the Andy Griff show? Who who's was it? Chris and you guys, you and Aaron and Chris were just talking one day and said, we got to do this. Or what, what, what's the, uh, we, we had a million dollar idea that I think is about as opposite from long shot <laughs> leaders as possible, where we yeah. were just going to recreate and talk about what other people do. So no, uh, I'll let Aaron tell our origin story. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a Southerner. I'm from Tennessee and you grew up in the South. Andy Griffith is on every day. I mean, it's on every day everywhere, but it's the, you know, it's got a, it's definitely got a warm place um, in the heart of Southerners and it's appointment viewing. So I had seen every episode during the pandemic. I just said, I need something, you know, that's kind of like comfort food on television. Binge watch the Andy Griffith show. And I thought, you know what? Christopher's a few years younger than me. He's never watched the show. It would be fun to just watch this with him and do a podcast about it to say, to get his immediate thoughts on a new, on a brand new show that's been around for him to him that's been around for 60 years. I, I totally also, get that. I, I'm, I, I'm living, I'm from LA, but I live in Georgetown, Texas now. And it's a small town uh, just North of Austin. And I get that. And just hearing, you know, cause I haven't seen an Andy Griffith show. You said, you know, watch the show and kind of, we're going to talk about it. So just listening to his draw is just, you know, there's a whole, it tells a story right there. So yeah, I get it. And you've got your own podcast, the Long Shot Leaders Podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we tell the stories of underdogs, uh, you know, people that are, you know, had to overcome large obstacles to find success. Anybody from Holocaust survivor to, you know, uh, the guy that wrote Jaws and the guy that wrote uh, Sleepless in Seattle to, you know, um, somebody that was homeless for 12 years that uh, actually now owns a house and uh, is doing, you know, decently. You know, so it's, it, it runs across the board on all kinds of people that have overcome lots of obstacles to find success. That's and amazing. you, yeah, and you will sometimes have them on the show, or is it just telling their story? No, well, every every episode is an interview episode. Yeah, just yeah, I like to tell their stories like it's like we're making a screenplay. So I'll go into the origin story and like, there's an algorithm there. There's a, there's there's something to learn there, right? So somebody that's gone from like zero or negative zero to some something that it, where they excel, you know, I want to know what that mechanisms are. Every It's like a thumbprint for each one. So we try to study. So we go through the origin of like, what did mom and dad do? Well, then what happened? Then what happened? What was the, the low point? What was the near death experience? You know, and how your new equilibrium on having that success, what does that look like? And we just get into all that. I'd love to hear more about your Jaws podcast. How, how, how was, what, what, what was that like? Uh, Carl, um, Carl Gottlieb. Carl Gottlieb. Thank you. <laughs> we do three episodes a week. I'm on 267 now. Carl Gottlieb. He, he's he, unbelievable. You know, him being friends with like, you know, the improv group before Jaws. He's friends with, you know, Richard Dreyfuss and all those great actors. And uh, it, it was a great, it, it was just wasn't talking about Jaws. We talked about everything, but, you know, it was, it was, he, he uh, I think wrote and directed uh, The Jerk, you know, or he, he, he wrote it and he worked with Carl Gottlieb who directed it. You know, so it, there's just so many other films there that he's done. He was, he was, it was amazing. That was really, it was fun because um, 
kind of like an idiot savant when it comes to certain things. Once we get going, I'm like, oh yeah, what about this? What about this? And we went into it. We had a nice uh, volley of uh, of film industry history there. It was fun. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, his script and Carl Reiner's direction and the jerk that was that was something to be um, something that something to see. That was such a great movie, and I actually remember when I worked in uh, television news and there was I was working with an older journalist and. Carl Gottlieb was on the board of one of the journalism uh, boards that he worked on or journalism organizations that he worked with. And I thought, see, is, I said, is this the same Carl Gottlieb who wrote Jaws? He said, yeah, he's dabbled in a bunch of a bunch of different industries, which I thought was really interesting. He's a smart guy, too. I mean, off the charts, like, you know, very formidable in a good way. Nice guy. But he's just he's just smart. And when you're talking to him, it's like he just has so much knowledge. Yeah. And. So you're so you started out. You said your first movie was the uh, Dirk Diggler story, and then you went into Boogie Nights. I mean, that's like as far as acting goes, that's like being shot out of a cannon for your first first movie. It feels like right. Well, it was Paul and Paul Thomas Anderson at the time. Uh, uh, he, it was his first movie, and uh, he was we were just kids, you know. And, and uh, he just asked me, you know, I've knew him for two weeks, and I had a rolling one night, and the next day he calls me up and says, "I want I have an idea to make a, a short film." about the rise and fall of a porno star and I want you to play him. And I was like, great. Cause I wanted to be an actor at the time as a nightclub promoter. And I was trying to, trying to break into that bubble. And I said, well, I guess this is the way it's done. You just do like a student film or something. And I didn't think it was going to do anything, you know, but uh, we did it. It was super fun. And throughout the years reading the variations of the script, cause then it was like a feature length. It was like a mockumentary, like spinal tap. And then it went, went on to be like, a, you know, a feature length documentary, you know, in one of his scripts. And then eventually, you know, it, you know, Boogie Nights. So you said, you said you got into film uh, filmmaking, or it made you want to be a filmmaker. And you've uh, written and produced and directed two movies, right? Right, yeah. Love Hollywood Style, which is my uh, feature-length film. And then I did a short film called Rituals and Resolutions, which did really well. And uh, I've directed uh, three documentaries. Oh, okay. What, 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 area, what areas have you focused on? Well, the, the biggest one was that it was a, about the history of the rave scene around America in the early 90s. It was one of my first you know, films. You know, I was a nightclub promoter, so I segued into, not that I was into raves, but I, my first documentary was on the history of LA nightclubs, you know, uh, which Paul uh, edited. And, hmm. and then I, I shot it. And then I said, you know, I could do this, uh, this big rave thing was happening. So I planned a four-month tour around the country filming DJs and, and promoters and magazine writers and the, the artists that created house music on the rave scene around America. And that's called Generation of Sound. And uh, I did that. Awesome. Is this your first foray into the Andy Griffith show or have you watched, um, have you watched other episodes in the past? Oh man, come on. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, you, know, you grew up with that stuff, especially, you know, when you're a kid and you got the flu and then like they're playing reruns and you're like, you know, and you're just watching those over and over again, there's nothing else, you know, and I'm a, I was a seventies child. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's watch Andy Griffin. That was, that was a staple. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as far as if, if you're a filmmaker is, is and you're in your work, are there, what were your influences, would you say growing up? Oh, and uh, of course, Spielberg, um, when I was really young, my uh, first person that wanted me to, be an actor uh, I was with Jackie Gleason and smoking the bandit but what really uh, made me want to be an actor and when I was a basket case because I had all kinds of health issues and, and um, ADHD and you know and uh, dyslexia and stutter and all this stuff I always make people laugh but I, I really wanted to be an actor because of Rocky 
and it kind of turned my life around. I, we talked about that on my podcast. It was, you know, so that was like a big thing. But as far as filmmaking is concerned and acting, starting with that, it's very, it's, there's a theme, you know, for me, it's on the waterfront, Scarface, Godfather, a lot of the staples, you know, and then, you know, as a filmmaker, you get into like Godard and, you know, Truffaut and Cassavetes we talked about. You, you, you my miss, uh, my IMDb, it says I'm on a Cassavetes film, which I'm not, which I was, but, uh, you know, then on to Glengarry Glenn Ross, which is, you know, when I was a filmmaker, he was like the biggest influence because I just love uh, David Mamet in his writing. So I would say you know, that, that, <laughs> that's the origin of how, you know, how that grew. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, if you guys are ready, we'll go ahead and dive in. Oh, actually, before we start, I would love to, you've got a lot of irons in the fire, but if folks want to find you, what are the best places for them to go to? Longshotleaders.com. Just go to Longshot. That's our, that's for our podcast. And, and it tells uh, more about me and has the social links. So just go to longshotleaders.com and you can find out more about me and the podcast there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. Uh, this episode, A Wife for Andy, first aired on April 15th, 1963. And we open with Opie coming into the jail, and he's dirty. He's been wrestling with Matt Merlis, his best friend. Um, oh, this he's seems, wrestling. He's getting huh? dragged across the playoff. <laughs> roughhousing was the eternal. Yeah. Yeah, by his ankles. Yeah, that's fair. And, I mean, he's a little cagey on exactly how, it, how what was going on because it as time goes on, it sounds like this was not just re- – this sounds like it, this was somewhere between roughhousing and a full-blown playground rumble. <laughs> a little bit like the, the kindergartners in recess, uh, the cartoon, that they were kind of these wild, feral creatures uh, that were always fighting, and that's what I'm picturing here. Yeah, and Andy starts to send him home to Aunt B, but Opie tells him that Aunt B is with Clara Edwards, who is sick, um, or turns out later she's not. Ex- she's had some issues, and Andy takes him back to clean him up. Which um, that's uh, that. And my favorite line is what that is. He is as he's about to put the ointment on Opie's knee, and Opie says it burns. And Andy says, "Well, you can wait around to get infected and, and go get a shot." And he's like, "All right, the ointment's ointment's yeah. fine <laughs> for sure." You know, uh, one thing that I noticed about that is like, it seems like they're, they're setting things up for, for Andy, you know, say, look, you know, he's, he's a single dad. He's got a lot, you know, he's got to take care of this and take care of that and all that. And it's in the incipient stages of this, of this episode, it almost is like, we really need to show and display that, that the basics of, of, of television back then, because this is one of the first big shows, you know, like, it's like the Mount Rushmore of shows, you know, that were really in the beginning of television. You know, yeah. and uh, and to see the, the the writers and how they had, uh, at least this is what I think, how they had to be cognizant of, you know, the dynamics of just let, let's just show things on a simplistic level of, you know, you know, how a single dad has to, you know, what the woman would normally be doing. Yeah. And it's funny because, I mean, he's I think this was one of the first ones to really feature a single parent, definitely a widowed parent doing this. And actually, I'd say widowed, you didn't have divorced families. Um, you didn't have the single parent, single parents from divorces in the 50s and 60s doing television shows. This is, you know, one of the first was a widowed parent. And it's just funny, like with the, the trope, with the so many things you see in these episodes, you get a glimpse of it and you're like, oh man, he's having to do double duty. That's, you know, he's having to really do this. And then you see Barney's face and you're like, oh, 
Barney, this problem needs a little bit of massaging, and Barney's going to come in with a sledgehammer and try to solve it. Did you say massaging or misogyny? I said massaging, but misogyny works here too because that's exactly what Barney becomes. Right. You know, another thing I noticed about that scene, that first scene with Barney, was not to be too analytical about it, but it is noticeable is that they took so much more time. There's a lot of dead space that you know. You know, he took like four beats you know, in between some dialogue there when he's just kind of looking at him. And in, t- in television day and sitcoms, you know, you can't take those type, that type of time. And it's just literally like, oh my God, this is like a, this is dead air. But it's like, they took their time with the story back then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, that's, this is, I mean, I can't, you watch this, it's almost kind of like at a slow, it, it moves at a slow clip. And there have been people I had to, spoken with who haven't grown, didn't really grow up watching it or at least, it wasn't like viewing it regular viewing in their household. And also we'll try to watch it and it's just moves at a slower pace, but there is something very peaceful about a kid coming in after roughhousing and the show taking two minutes for his dad to get him cleaned up and send him on his way. Well, that's another thing is like you, they have analytics now for shows to where they're measuring the LPMs, the laugh per minutes as to where then they really didn't have like, why do we even worry about that? Because the competition is not that much. We just want to be able to tell a nice family show and, and then hit all our marks and kind of do our job and make it nice. And we're not really kind of like breaking it down to where shows now, you know, your focus groups and, and, and how many LPMs you're getting on a sitcom and, and, and all that. It was just so looking at it because I haven't seen an episode in a long time and watching that. Uh, that was just so uh, prevalent in the beginning when Barney starts to talk. Yeah, yeah. And with the roughhousing, Andy tells oh, Andy that Helen, Mrs. Crump, or Miss Crump, has summoned all the parents of the children who are wrestling and wants to have a conversation with them, which I just always think is hilarious, where you're like, your kid gets into a fight at school and, and, you're, and you're being told, yeah, go to the teacher, what, the teacher, you're being sent to speak with the teacher about your kid at school, which just never would happen today. Opie leaves and it's clear Barney has something to say. And he's concerned that Andy is not remarried. And I mean, it's just it's just funny because he keeps going on and Andy's irritated and just says he doesn't want to talk about it. And Barney keeps at it saying being alone makes people irritated. And this is rich because Barney isn't married either, which is just kind of hilarious. And then isn't he though? Who's, no, who's, he, the, who's the lady that he's that cooked them dinner? Well, Thelma Lou's his girlfriend, but they 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 oh, never they they don't marry until the uh, reunion show in the eighties. Okay. Return to Mayberry. Okay, and he has Juanita. He, I mean, he he always has a has a has someone on his arm. Yeah, yeah. Before that, it was Hilda May, and um, yeah, he's always Barney's a for Barney's goofiness. He's never really alone. That's that's for sure. And Andy finally tells him to shut up and just says, "Look, I'm not. I don't want to talk about this with you anymore. But I just haven't found the right woman." And of course, Barney's now got the answer. And later at the Taylor household, Andy is reading with Opie and Aunt B is taking food to Clara. And Aunt B leaves and Andy starts to read the legend of Sleepy Hollow to Opie. And then the doorbell rings and Amanda, a very lovely um, woman in her late 20s, stops by saying she's supposed to meet Thelma Lou there. And more women keep stopping by to meet Thelma Lou. And it's like, you know, you know what's taking place. Barney is basically trying to set Andy up. But I'm sitting here watching this and I'm kind of like, if I was ever going to be a single man in a small town in, in, in my 30s, this is the place to be. Dude. It is. 
I believe I was thinking I'm like, wait a second. I mean, I would live in a town where that has a hundred thousand people, but I mean, where did all those women come from? Yeah. Not bad for Mayberry. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. I mean, oh. and, and apparently there's more. I mean, this is Barney said, if you don't like these women, we'll bring some more by. Yeah. <laughs> but what I love about this scene, and it, it is throughout the episode, is that you see like how Andy favors father being a father more than anything else and finding a girlfriend, which you get to see that beautiful side of him. And Opie's adorable when he sits there and keeps reminding he repeats back. I wish I remembered what the lines were, but repeats back what they had just said. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just a really nice father-son moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I just wonder, he can't be reading the entire legend of Sleepy Hollow to them because that's at least eight, five or 6,000 words, I think. <laughs> but we'll see. Is this something you know? Do you just know the the word count of No, but I've read it. It's not a it's not like it's it's I mean it's not a short short story. I mean it's it's got some it's One dog? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it and it and the tales of Rip Van, Van Winkle wake Rip Rip Van Winkle make up one of those little bitty um short story books. <laughs> so Barney comes in back in the door saying he got all these women together so Andy could pick out one he likes. And Andy just tells Barney to get the girls out of there. Barney, smooth as he can be, comes into the living room, blows his whistle to get them to stop talking and says, Thelma Lou was going to tell them something, but they'll have to wait. And they are just so clearly annoyed, which I don't blame them. Totally. They're no. not wrong. No. Barney leaves and says... Fool them once. Wait, wait. Fool them once. Shame on them. Fool them yeah. twice. Won't get we'll fooled again. Okay, little George Bush uh, Jr. Uh, reference. Yeah, right? that's right. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, so when Barney says the search goes on as he leaves, Andy just kind of almost rolls his eyes, and we go to commercial. And after the break, Barney and Thelma Lou are in town, and Barney is discussing his plans to set Andy up with somebody. And they see Andy and Helen Crump walking through town, talking, and Barney gets the idea to get them together i mean clearly andy and helen have a have a rapport totally. yeah, i was so much so i thought they were i you know it's been a while since i watched the show so much i thought they were married yeah well i mean they date throughout the entire show and then they get married at at the end of the series or in may the first the pilot of mayberry rfd but in real life andy griffith and anita corso who played helen crump actually also had an off-screen relationship as well so Great. they really oh, okay wow they really had a relationship yeah. And it was a little bit like it's something that there are certain segments of the Andy Griffith fans who are just like, we don't talk about this. They don't talk about what? What part that they don't talk about? Well, them, I mean, they had kind of it was a little scandalous because Andy was married at the time. Oh, and, um, well, yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. And um, yeah, so that was. And they were on and off again and off again for several years. And uh, and yeah, but that's, you know, you'll have a segment of fans who just don't want to delve into that, into that, um, right. into the I dark mean, story. Yeah. Did, and that story came out why they were shooting the show. No, it came out. I think the first reference I ever read was was Andy and Don, uh, the book, which is by Daniel Devasay, oh. where he kind of dove in. And I mean, it was, it talked about some of the, just the, you know they were nor they were normal they were act they were stars in the um in this in Hollywood in the sixties I mean you know they weren't perfect and you know it talked about some of the mistakes they they are some of the just the more some of the more you know tawdry issues as I said when we interviewed Daniel Devasay I was like this is this book is extremely com tame compared to the Dirt by Motley Crue. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's fascinating to me on that subject, though, that, you know, television was built on the endorsements, you know, that the, they got to sell that Tide, commer- that Tide, you know, detergent. You know, they got to sell, you know, that was all, you know, I'm a big Twi- Twilight Zone fan. And Rod Serling was like, you know, battling the, this, the, these endorsements. They, they controlled everything. So they really kept that under wraps. They must have known and had like a team of people saying, look, this is how we're going to keep this under wraps because this cannot get out because we will lose our sponsors. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, they, I think, you know, I think there was, you know, and I don't know if it was how open and blatant it was, but it was something that was, you know, discussed in that, in that book. One question I've been thinking, the teacher looks a lot like Audrey Hepburn to me. What do we (laughs) think about that statement? I mean, I think Anita Corso is an attractive woman. I mean, a very attractive woman. I think Audrey Hepburn was kind of on another level. Oh, we got a fan here. Okay. I mean, I don't think I'm really going out on a limb here <laughs> when I say Audrey Hepburn was just um, strikingly right. beautiful. Okay. Yeah, she did. A, you know, I think that they, you know, once again, I think they they made their decisions extremely careful back then. And I think that I was when I was watching this actress, and I don't know her name. What's her name again? Uh, Anita Corso. Anita Corso. Okay. When watching her, I was like. It just screams like they vetted that person out because for, in order for Andy to consider marrying somebody on the show, this is a big decision. She, she's got to be classy. She can't be, you know, she has to play, uh, she has to be general, you know, she can't, not too specific in either direction, you know, and, and uh, that's that they got that right on the head because that she was like, she really didn't, you know, display a lot of personality in that in, in that very first step, I heard this introduction, I guess, of hers. Well, do we think that they so they do it like a lot? I know that they don't do you know continuity between episodes, but they have in like leading up to this season, they've kind of shown the polls. You've got the darlings, you've got the fun girls, and then they kind of like show these kind of radical people that Barney was not, or sorry, that Andy was not into, and then kind of gave him Goldilocks right near the end of the season. Yeah, and I mean, she's also, it's also kind of like, I mean, and maybe there is something to be said for this. I mean, when we talk about the progressiveness of Andy Griffith, I mean, maybe this is something we should dive in a little later, but actually let's save it to a little later because it really, this really might tie in more when we're talking about the the dinner yes. scene with yes. Barney. Yes, 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 that's good stuff. Yeah. And so they cut to the jail with Andy on the phone, accepting a dinner invitation from Thelma Lou because Barney has decided to get them together. But Barney can't help but take a victory lap um, about the dinner invitation. So Andy is immediately suspicious. And then Thelma Lou is a part of all this. I mean, Thelma Lou often goes along with Barney's crazy schemes, even though she knows they're kind of nuts. Love makes us do crazy things, Aaron. I mean, and she loves Barney. She does. And at Thelma Lou's, Andy steps by and sees that Helen is there too. And Barney starts being awkward about how great they look together. And then the four of them sit down and wait for dinner to be ready. And Andy basically says, oh, you're making leg of lamb. I love leg of lamb. It's my favorite dish. And Barney asks Helen if she can cook leg of lamb. And, and and Helen reveals that she's a terrible cook. And Barney starts in and says he imagines she'll become a better cook once she settles down and gets married. Helen disagrees, as does Andy, and says she wants to keep working. And Barney's just stunned. And Andy's like, hey, it's the 20th century. I mean, women should be, you know, women should be allowed to work. This isn't something where they just give up their job once they get married. And 
I think actually this selection, I mean, he's had every love interest on the show for Andy has been a strong willed woman, but this was kind of, I think may have been a huge reflection of the politics of Andy Griffith, who was always trying to push the conventional thought with the show in the most subtle way where it wasn't something that was attacking. It was just, but it was just kind of like, yeah, he's not going to, he's, he's going to settle down. Basically every woman he dates is somebody who's independent and assertive and strong. Yeah. I, I sense that was a small paradigm shift for the Andy Griffith show saying a little, it wasn't like, you know, back then, once again, you know, things were very conservative. So, you know, it's not like the, when Ellen, you know, did on her show, but in a small, tiny microcosm of way, you know, that little statement was like, hmm, okay, you know, without, put, without bending, but it was like, that was, you know, because a lot of those other shows I recall were very, some, a lot of it was on the nose, you know, and it was just good old fashioned family value to where that those, the archetypes of men and women were pretty strong. And, you know, breaking that archetype, that was a kind of a stretch for the Andy Griffin show, you know, and and and, and in television in general at that time. Yeah. And they break it in another oh, go ahead, Chris, from sorry. Oh, I just want to pick on one line that they say, because you know, they're 60 years into the 20th century. And it's not like, you know, the 20th century was like at the beginning of it was this, you know, wonderful moment for for suffrage and women's rights. Like that happened later. So I was surprised they didn't say this is the 60s. You know, it's just hmm. a little off to say that. Somebody said oh. this century to me in like your 2060, I'd be like, come on, guys, we're we're way into this. My thought on this, my thought on that is they always tried to make the show as timeless as possible. So the 20th century was he would never say oh, it's right? 1963. He would have just said it's the 20th century to give it kind of an open feel. Was that shot in that was in 63 this episode? Yep, 63. Wow, man. It just seems like to me, and that and once again. Look at the audience. This was made for a certain, you know, type of audience. I bet you, and there's no internet, right? So the people that were watching this show that it really appealed to, even fashion didn't go really mainstream, you know, until the internet yeah. came around. Because you'd go to you'd go to a town before the internet. You're like, have you guys heard about this yet? You know, like, but in '63, I bet you the target audience was more or less and happy to be more or less around 1956. Yeah, you know what yeah. I'm saying. You know, like the, yeah. in the sense in the sense that things were just a little bit more, a little slower in that target market. You know, where that took place. You know, not to say that Andy Griffin wasn't watched by people in New York and LA or things like that. But it, you know, but who they were really targeting. You know, they were fine with you know the values that they had in '56 as opposed to '63. I think. Yeah, and well, yeah, and the funny thing is, is we're talking about the archetype being pushed. The, the counter to this whole argument is of, of where what a woman's role is, is being made by the biggest buffoon on the entire show in, in the form of Barney. And so it's really it almost it almost pushes it. But it, the funny thing is, is if today there would be if this was done today, people would be on social media saying, look at the Andy Griffith show trying to push this agenda in these sorts of ways, making this comment and then having. The, the dumbest person on the show be the one to push the conventional thought. Are we here to cancel Barney? Is that what we're, we're trying here to, to say? We're here to cancel the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> that's, that's, oh man, I got to get a new job then. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's the funny thing is that like, you know, Andy is the, is 
he is the leader of the woke movement in 63 back then with this, this, this for the Andy Griffith show, you know, cause let's face it. Wasn't I love Lucy around at the same time? Yeah. I mean, you, you give or take a few years. Yeah. Afterward, was she, when, when did I love Lucy start? 64? I love Lucy was in the fifties actually. In the fifties. So, yeah. I mean, look at that. That was more racy, but, but that, that took place in, what was it? New York or LA? And, New York. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, different we're, we're talking small town America. That's what this is built for. So even if it's 63, you know, that was woke light for Andy to, to say, Hey, look, you know, this is a new century. This is the way it is. And, and it's funny because there are people that, you know, it, they're watching this in 63 that live in that kind of town and say, look, man, I'm with Barney on this, man. I mean, look, I mean, this is like, and they, they could appeal to that. Everybody yeah. likes the overzealous person that's standing by and, and the more overzealous he got, the better it was. Absolutely. And so Barney ultimately decides he doesn't like Helen and pulls Stumble to its side and basically asks to rush the leg of lamb to be ready. And so they need to get dinner. So because he's like, we're pulling get the on. plug. Get on to the next <laughs> dinner, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and the next morning, Andy comes in and Barney is waiting to give Andy a speech, like to say, Andy, I'm sorry for this. And Barney shake and Andy shakes his hand and says he really likes Helen. And then Barney, self-aware that he always is full of self-awareness says he forbids Andy to see her again, which is just so funny. And then Andy's like, I'm having dinner with Helen and forget it. So it's a good yeah, scene. Good scene. And then at the ta- ta- and at the Taylor household, Andy is wearing a suit, getting ready for dinner. And once again, the sea of women have returned to saying they're here to meet uh, Thelma Lou. And Andy's like, what is going on? And Barney comes in the back door saying he had to do it and figures Helen has seen the women and left. Andy tells Barney he's picking her up and taking her to dinner in Mount Pilot for Chinese. I guess we can say this is a milestone because this is the first date between Andy and Helen. And and they, and, and they have a Chinese restaurant in um in, in maybe oh Mount Pilot, Mount Pilot, which is the town about uh, 15 miles over. Oh yeah. Well that that's is that the big city? Uh it's it's the it's the it's the place to go. Yeah. I mean it's like the mid-sized town. I guess Unless- you got raw. Unless you're single, because then you want to be in Mayberry. Oh, then you want to be in Mayberry for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah. And then basically drags Barney into the living room and tells them Barney will explain why they've all been called there. And then Andy just bolts, I mean, just leaves him sitting there. And um, Barney asks them if they've ever thought of starting a softball team as we go to commercial, which is great. This would be so great to take back. Go ahead, Michael. That was a beautiful callback, by the way. You know, that was a great because that's what Thelma Lou referenced earlier in a couple scenes prior out in the street, you know, and then that's what really makes that really funny because it's a it's a it's a it's a perfect callback. Yeah. So good. It is so good. And then I mean it is just Andy has just had enough. And in the epilogue, Barney comes into the jail and it's he's like he says i've been meddling in your personal affairs and i will stop and andy's just kind of sitting there he's like yeah you're yeah right and then he says okay i've got something to tell you and he tells barney he's going to decide to date helen we uses the term court which is a fairly out of date term today but i remember even in high school dads would um fathers would say are you courting so-and-so? I mean, so mm. it was still, it was a, still a term that was used. Which denotatively means you are, you are dating somebody to see eventually if you can marry them. Oh, is that what it means? Okay. Well, there's, there's several meanings for courting, you know, but uh, they're under like they're the fifth or sixth definition of courting. 
it would be it it is you know to actually peruse into to to date to eventually marry huh okay yeah so andy's not messing around then and barney quickly breaks his promise to stop meddling in his affairs and the show ends which uh both you know well crafted you know new equilibrium for both of them barney you know said look i realized that i you know i have to live out i can't live through you and and also uh uh, Andy, you know, learned not to be so tendentious. Yeah. This is one where I kind of go back and forth because we're about to do the whistle, whistle ranking, which Michael is basically we rank the show on a 10 whistle scale, one being the worst, 10 being the best. Uh, but this is one where I like these episodes and I do like these episodes. This is, there are some episodes where Barney just becomes so over meddling that I sometimes, it, it sometimes doesn't make, I find it, oh, I don't really? find it as amusing as, as somewhere he's more of a, um, he's more reactionary. Okay. Okay. That's his mate. That's his character. That's his mantra is reactionary. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. So how many whistles would you do Aaron? I will do six. Oh, interesting. I'm going to go eight. You're going to go eight? I liked this one. I liked the, and I really just, because of the emphasis on fatherhood, I thought they did such a nice job showing Andy in a comical situation. See, my data set is nil because I've not, I can only remember this episode. I haven't seen so many episodes in like years since I was a kid. So I can't, I can't compare it. I can compare it maybe to, you know, other TV shows of its time, but I can't, there's no other Andy Griffith show I could really really compare this to whatever happened to uh gomer i mean you know i didn't see him in this you know he, yeah, um, i liked him he's uh he, he shows up he's he's we're in season three so he's just made an appearance in a handful of episodes he's really prominent in season four but there are just he's, he's not one that's a recurring character in season i mean he's a recurring character but he's not the staple that he is in season season four is it me or when Gomer, I remember some of those episodes with Gomer and that's where they really started to kind of, it was, it was funnier. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I'm not, I don't know. Oh yeah. No, I think Gomer adds a lot to the show. I think basically the, the revolving cast of characters is often what makes the show work so well. I mean, it was, I always said, if you, if you hold up the Andy Griffith, and Seinfeld, the two sh- the shows have a lot more in common than people may necessarily give it credit for. Because you got Andy, who is not the narcissist that Jerry Seinfeld is, but he <laughs> right. is a um. And I say Jerry Seinfeld, the character is in the show, but he's he's not the narcissist. He's more of a family man, and there's a message, and there's learning something. But what makes Seinfeld so funny to me is the revolving cast of characters that just pop in and out of the show. And I think that's what is the case with the Andy Griffith show as well. Yeah. Barney is uh, Jason Alexander and Michael Richards is Gomer Aunt B, although it's, you know, it's like, I guess uh, she's the Louise Dreyfus, right? Yeah. I mean, or you could argue that uh, (laughs) Newman is not Opie. Um, Newman, Newman, there are plenty of Newmans. Mayor Stoner is a Newman. Um, Otis Campbell may be a Newman. I mean, there's, there's plenty of Newmans. But yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think the, um, and I definitely think the women that Andy, um, and then, you know, Jerry always has a revolving cast of girlfriends. I mean, Andy only has a few, but Mm -hmm. they definitely, when they're there, they add so much to the episode. Right. He's the ultimate bachelor in that town. And, and I guess, uh, Jerry was a quite a catch in his little area. Yeah. Yeah. 
The um, so any final thoughts? Good episode. Liked it. It's been it's been a thrill to have you, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. My thank pleasure. You. This was uh, this was fun. I love it. Uh, you know what do they? What's the term that they call when you analyze something? You, you Uber out on something. What is it? What is it called? There's an actual term for it. I forgot, but I I really enjoyed Ubering out on uh, the Andy Griffin show and kind of like breaking it down a little bit with you and analyzing the you know the aspects of it. I mean, we just use the term retrospective, but I don't feel like that's doing. That's not the term you're looking for. I like Uber for. out. That's nice. Like geeking, I, I, Uber geeking out. Yeah. You know, I like geeking out. Geeking out, maybe. Absolutely. Well, one more time, can you tell us how? Can you tell folks how they can find you? Yeah, just go to longshotleaders.com. You'll be able to find out. Hey, if you got a long shot story, also, we want to tell your story on our podcast. So if you want to go to, uh, got a good story you know, about yourself or somebody else that you can refer, uh, go to longshotleaders.com and you can find out uh, more about the show and more about me there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Michael. And thank you for listening to um, to the podcast. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think about it, subscribe. Next week, we're doing dogs, dogs, dogs. And until then, Christopher, <laughs> have you ever thought about starting a softball team? I have, and I quit. <laughs> <laughs>